welcome back. This is uh, episode two of War Stories with B-Rax. Um, it's October 14th, 2020. I'm sitting here at my computer with a glass of lemonade and vodka. So, let's jump right into it. Um, September time frame, 2006, we boarded a TWA flight of all Marines, um, and we started our journey. So we flew to Anchorage, Alaska, stayed there for a little bit. They let us out. The biggest thing I remember about that place is the mountains just being absolutely beautiful. And there was this giant fish on the wall. I think it's like a 500 pound halibut or something like that. Like just blew my mind how big it was. Um, it was pretty convenient cause it had a smoking area, albeit pretty gross because there's you know, two or 300 Marines just chain smoking inside of it for the entire layover that we had. But, uh, it was nice to be able to have a cigarette after that flight. So we get back in, <clears throat> we fly over the North pole to Leipzig, Germany. And it's kind of the same thing where we weren't allowed to, we were allowed to be outside, but we couldn't smoke outside for pollution reasons. So we smoked inside and there were German military police or something like making sure that we followed the rules. And of course there are a lot of jokes about what the Germans have done in the past uh -huh, to people. But, uh, we again, just hung out for about four or five hours, got back on the plane and we flew to Kuwait city from Leipzig, Germany. We landed in the international airport in Kuwait city. And we loaded on some unmarked buses that just look like normal Kuwaiti buses. And we, we were given two magazines or a magazine per bus of rounds because there has been issues with terrorists attacking Marines. I think there was a pretty famous one where the two Marines buddy rushed with M9s and killed the dude or dudes with AKs that had AKs. They killed them with pistols, which is pretty epic. Um, like early in the war, maybe even before the invasion of Iraq, but you can look that up. I don't know, remember exactly. So we got on the highway and we drove on the highway <coughs> west from Kuwait City across the desert. And we're on a very nice looking highway, but there's just nothing. I mean, it's just flat, nothingness, desert. But there's just all these tanks from 1991 when the Iraqis got their ass kicked by us uh, trying to flee back to Iraq from Kuwait City as the Marine 2nd Division was coming up north from the south to the north towards Kuwait City. And so they just basically built a new highway next to the highway. They just left all that stuff, so there's literally just miles and miles and miles of just blown up tanks and trucks and everything just sitting out there, and it's the desert, so it never really rusts. It's just out there. So that was kind of cool. Um, then we, we arrived at Camp Virginia, I believe the name of it was, and it was a multinational base, so it was kind of the first time any of us saw like South Korean Marines or Polish military or British military or Australian or all these different countries, even Tongan, there's Tongan Marines there. There were Tongan Marines there, which is pretty cool. Um, but just all these different people walking around and we were blown away by how nice the Chow Hall was, which we pretty much are wherever we go. Um, 
and then we, it was hot, so we had to acclimate, so we were there for about a week, I think, or five days or something along those lines, and then it, you know, we were, we were staying in a giant tent that could house basically the whole company, so this giant tent had bunk beds, and it could house probably 200 people, something like that, it was just these massive tents, and then we loaded up, we got on a C-17, an Air Force bird, and we we loaded up on these, they're actually pallet, pallet, uh, that go, pallets that go on the rollers of the back of the plane, but on the pallet was actually like airline seating kind of, but I'd say half as big as airline seating, and they made us wear full gear for some reason, even though all the Air Force guys weren't wearing full gear, but that's kind of how us Marines are, we sort of do dumb shit all the time, um, but when the plane took off, the pallets rolled back about six inches, and then we, like, started going down. We, like, rolled forward, like, six inches. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and then we landed in Al-Assad, Iraq, which is in the Al-Ambar province. Um, I think it's, like, 100 miles south of the Haditha Triad, where we were heading. And we kept we kept getting word that uh, we were you know guys were still getting wounded. Three three was still having wounded, still losing guys, and we started just basically trying to trying to do the one for one swap. And so we we're you know they're trying to work out how the rotation's going to go, how we're going to do it. And I think we ended up being there for about a week, maybe a week and a half, because the original mission to get there was, um, they actually tried driving and my buddy Montana could probably, I'll have him on here sometime to tell some stories. Cause he's got some sides of stories that I wasn't involved with that are pretty funny or pretty just insane. And, um, he was selected and he, as he puts it, he says it was all the shit bags were selected from the company to be part of this first convoy. I think it was, it was supposed to be a two day convoy from Al-Assad up to uh, battalion headquarters, which is actually a giant hydroelectric dam. Um, so they started their journey, and I think like half the vehicles got blown up or something like that. Like they over the over the two days, they ended up losing like half of their vehicles and just said, "Fuck this!" Everybody else is flying. <laughs> so we waited a couple more days, and then I guess fifty threes became available, and we. We basically just stood at the LZ, and they were sending about a platoon at a time in, in these CH-53s. And I remember just cruising across the first time I got in. It was like the middle of the day. And I got in, and I was watching the waste gunners. And one of them just reached in the, like, if you've seen the inside, it's kind of like exposed structure, sort of on the inside, he like reached in a little cubby made out of the support beams and he grabbed an iPod and he hooked it up to a wire that I guess played music like to all the, uh, to all the crew members. And I, I wonder what he was listening to. I know that I'd probably be listening to some like Hendrix or something just to be cheesy and cliche. Uh, but yeah, so they, you know, I could see him like bobbing his head and moving around and as he was like scanning with the 50 cal out the side of the helicopter, which I thought was pretty cool, pretty funny. Um, 
it blew it blew my mind when we we got to the dam and we landed right on the top of the dam and it was it was a just this massive soviet era i think azerbaijan built it or something like that but part of the soviet block so the the construction was really this just giant concrete brutalist uh construction and so we get off we grab all of our bags and everything we're sitting there by the lz the other bird lands lets everybody off and then we were going to do convoys throughout the day where the three three guys would get dropped off a squad at the dam they'd get on the helicopter we'd get on the truck and then head down but uh as we were waiting in the middle of the day one of the convoys came rolling up and they had a body bag with them because one of the dudes from 3-3 got killed on his way to the dam uh i guess it was a ied that was hidden up in like power lines because they they iraq is is close to western style so there's power lines and stuff and culverts and concrete and roads and asphalt uh so yeah i guess they were cruising down the road and something blew up from above him and hit him in the head uh probably pretty gruesome he was zipped up in the body bag and they just the three three guys just seemed like worn out just like shocked just pissed which i can only imagine how angry that made some of them um or his family who's like expecting to see him in two weeks or a week uh, so it's just fucking horrendous. But, so they decided that we're going to wait until nighttime, because nighttime was really the only time that we didn't get messed with. And I'd say 99.9% .9 of the time on that deployment, that was the case, because they don't have night vision. So we have a huge advantage with our thermals and with our infrared stuff. And we were all like dead eyes with our lasers and stuff. I mean, we, we would practice shooting all the time at night so they just learned their lesson on that one and out there in the desert there's nowhere to hide during the nighttime they definitely it definitely helps them to do stuff during the day um and for lots of different reasons so the sun goes down and i think it's our turn to finally go and it's about midnight and we leave the dam probably midnight zero one and we start to cruise down what's called MSR Bronze, which basically went around, and I'll pull the map up, but it went around to the west of the Haditha, of Haditha and Haklania. And so Golf Company was going to take responsibility for Haklania, which is basically like the south half of Haditha. It wasn't quite as big as Haditha, but Echo had Haditha. Golf had Haklania, and Fox Company had Barwana on the other side of the river. Um, and they all had, they each had their unique, uh, traits and the enemy had its unique way of fighting in those different three cities, as I'll explain as we do this podcast or whatever this is called, this installment. Um, so we're cruising down the road and it's just, just vast darkness as far as you can see. And we were using headlights to look for, like, pressure plates and stuff because, like I said, they don't mess with us at night. So it wasn't about being incognito or sneaky, especially on this convoy. We're literally just trying to get 
us, golf company, to the FOB, assume uh, control of the FOB, and pick up the patrolling cycle and everything. But we're cruising down the road, and it's like the surface of the moon. And the, the colors, there's just like no color in Iraq. Everything was like white. The sand was white. The dirt, or the rocks were like white. The houses were all white. All the guys wore white. It's pretty ridiculous. And, uh, but we're cruising at night, and you got the high beams on, and a bunch of, uh, it seemed like everybody just strapped as many lights that they could to Humvees and stuff, and to trucks, and Sometimes we'd have fuses blow out and stuff, but we just you just wanted as much light as you could get because you're looking for these tiny little copper wires. Um, which actually reminds me, a thing that I missed was when we got to the dam, we were going to leave in the day, and then we got pushed back, and they're like, no, we can't go at night. So then we went and we did a IED, Improvised Explosive Devices course, really quick where we went and met with the EOD, which is Explosive Ordnance Disposal Team, who were getting a lot of leg, you know, a lot of work out there uh, because we were just hitting and finding so many IEDs, just tons and tons and tons. I think later in the deployment, there was a day where my company found like 13 IEDs in one day or something ridiculous like that and maybe hit a couple too. Um... But I remember this guy, we're on like the huge dam and we're on one of the sides where there's a little bit of dirt and he's starting to show us like the different things like anal beads were a type of Vic. So there's two types of IEDs. You can get real into it, but for the most part where I was, there were two types of IEDs. There were command wire, which were where the Iraqi has a car battery at the other side of a long ass wire, like a thousand feet away. And he touches the poles to the battery and it, it detonates the charge. So it's a timing thing. They, they're really good at timing it underneath vehicles, but there's also a uh, victim one. So there's pressure plates, which are basically like two saw blades, um, positive, negative. And when you step, it bends them together and it creates the circuit, which will cause the explosion. But there are also anal beads, which <laughs> were funny because that's exactly what they look like. But they, you would take a garden hose and you would cut little like one inch sections of it, or probably smaller, you could get away with. Um, and you would take wire and you would glue it on the inside, like a positive and negative wire that uh, you would glue them on the inside of the hose and you would scrape off the, the uh, coating on the wires and so you, only where it went inside the uh, the bead of the animal beads like on the inside of the donut of the hose and I'll, I'll see if I can pull up a picture from the internet to show but you basically have this like when you see it laid out on the ground you have these like little sections of hose that are a couple inches apart maybe six inches apart and they're made for when you step on one of those little donuts it, it creates the circuit and detonates the ID. So another type of victim operated. But I remember we walk up to the EOD tech and he's got like capris on and he's wearing flip-flops and he's just like the surfer dude like whoa and um he's talking he's like yeah dude like two days ago my buddy just got like totally pink misted right in front of me just like all over the front of the vehicle like it was crazy and he we were all just kind of looking at each other like, ooh, this guy's maybe been over here too long, or he's done this too much. Uh, definitely desynthesize, desynthesize, 
he's not very sensitive to the fact that his buddy got blown away. Um, not very bothered by it, it seems like. So, as we're doing that, I remember we're at the top of the dam, and all of a sudden, there's just this loud noise, and everybody hits the deck except for me, because I kind of saw what was happening, and, um... And the EOD guy, we both just looked down the river, and there's a fucking F-18 flying, like, at our level, on the low side of the dam, like, flying straight towards us, like, fucking, like, and then it just turned at the last second and went, like, right over us, over the top of the dam, and was just, like, shooting out chafe, or not chafe, but flares out the side, like, as it was just, like, hugging the, the river, just screaming right above the palm trees. Right above the city, just making a shit ton of noise. So that was pretty fucking crazy. Like, whoa. And then we finished that, and they told us to actually go to bed. And then they woke us up and said, no, it's time to go. So back to the drive. And the, on the drive, we're, we're cruising, and we're just going like one mile an hour. And it just takes hours and hours of just in the pitch dark. We're just driving around all these holes. Dodging these massive craters that are fucking, like, wider than the road itself. Like, wider than a two-lane road. Craters or you know, half the road. We would stop. We'd send fucking riflemen out to check, like, culverts and stuff. Or little bridges. I don't know if there are any bridges. But there are definitely some culverts that we would stop. And we'd go and we'd look underneath to see if they put, like, a fucking dud 500-pound bomb in there. Or something like that. That would just disintegrate one of our fucking Humvees. Um, so we kept cruising, and then we started, like, I started seeing kind of light, like street lights almost, and I looked out the, the side of the truck, we are in a big seven time, and we were starting to enter the edge of the city, we came up Hawklandia Road, is what we called it, and I remember that only, I'd say like one out of... Five, maybe one out of five or one out of seven houses had electricity in their generators. Um, but most of the city had no power. It was just pitch black. And you could kind of see some damage and stuff. Like towards the outskirts of town, like some of the buildings had bullet holes and some of the buildings had other holes, like big explosion holes in them and stuff. But it, was, it, was, it just continuously got more and more as we reached our fob. Which I'll show you on a on a map where that is. Um, and I didn't know what the city looked like or like the layout of the city yet because we had just rolled in. But I knew that we were coming into the fob because I started seeing Constantino wire and just the it, the buildings around our fob were just hammered for however long the fob had been there. So maybe at that point a year and a half, two years. And so all they're just hit like all these mortar rounds had landed and just blown stuff up. And we, we keep cruising, keep cruising. And we turn around this corner and I see what's blatantly one of the posts for guarding the for guarding the entrance way to the base. And it was just like a giant and I think I have a picture of it, so hopefully I can put that in there, but there's a giant it's like a giant sandbag pyramid with the post built out of like plywood and Humvee glass and the whole thing is just chewed up like there's just bullet holes all in the glass 
spider webs and the because Humvee glass is bulletproof, but it still like looks messed up when it gets shot. So there's all these bullet marks, and the sandbags were all chewed up from mortar rounds and from bullet holes and stuff. And I'm like, holy fuck, this is gonna be fucking crazy. And it's like nighttime too. There's just a little bit of like ambient street lights from wherever the you know every once in a while. So we pull into the base and we get out. And Gunny Benji's there. Who Gunny Benji kind of talked like, if I remember this correctly, and I swear that we all talked about this, he kind of talked like Joe Pesci. He's kind of like a New York guy, like kind of like, like a nasally New Jersey accent, kind of, or something. And we, um, we're getting off the trucks, and the, that's when it hits me that our base is like absolutely tiny. Our base, the parking area where they park these fucking seven tons, were maybe only as big as like twice the length of a seven ton. And so we're doing like, you know, Austin Powers like 30 point turn. We get out. I see a couple burn shitter barrels burning. That's like some of the only light. And Gunny Benji's just like drinking a cup of coffee and he's like, hurry the fuck up turn those fucking trucks off before they start mortaring us. He's like yelling at us. And then we don't know where to go. So we're all just like, and he's like, just go find somewhere to sleep. So my squad pokes into this room, which I think ended up turning into the armory. But at this point it was just like sea bag storage for either us coming in with our sea bags or with, um, I guess it'd be us. Cause they didn't, the sea bags didn't go away. So we're all like, Oh, finally we get to sleep. This, it was like the longest day ever. Um, waiting at the LZ in Al-Assad, flying to the dam, doing fucking IED training, waiting all day, finally getting told to go to bed, laying down, getting woken the fuck up, <laughs> not sleeping at all, and told to that we're actually cruising out that night, waiting for an hour or two to, to get clearance to leave the wire. We leave the wire, it takes like fucking hours to get home, or home, get to, to get to the FOB. So I think it's like zero four, like the sun's about to come up. We're allowed to go to sleep. And I remember laying down and just falling into the deepest fucking sleep ever. Like, instant. Which I don't normally do that. I'm a pretty shitty sleeper. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> just instantly unconscious. Deep sleep. And getting shook and awake. Like, hey, we gotta go. Like, where are we going? We're going to one of the checkpoints. We're going to the, the TCP. Traffic control point. Like, what? Okay. Get on trucks. I'm like, how long was I asleep? Like, 15 minutes. Like, damn. So we get on the trucks, and we just drive back out of the city the way we came in. And we get to this tiny little, like, base, if you want to call it that. This tiny little checkpoint, squad size outpost, out on the MSR that we took down. And it's just this weirdly shaped like a kind of like a ham bone or like a chicken leg or something or a chicken wing. And we, it's just like, and it's just Hesco's Hesco barriers, which I'll, I'll, I'll pull a picture of, which I think are pretty cool inventions. It's made out of Hesco's. It's got a little roof on it. And then there's a post on top of that. And there's another post over and we finally get to lay down and go to sleep. And so I think I get like an hour or two of sleep. It's the first morning. The sun comes up. I get, I go to get on post and I'm on post 
and it's like it comes over the radio medevac for somebody and it's like holy shit i've been here for like what seems like an hour you know i just basically got here and we use what's called kill kill numbers so it's the last four your social and then golf for golf company and then the first letter of your uh last name so i'm my name is braxton russell so my kill number was golf romeo da 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 one two three four last so and that comes across and it's an r number or an r name and so it's like well shit is it riviera who was my racomator at boot camp and my friend through since boot camp, boot camp, SOI, and as a boot in 2-3, or was it Rivera, who I met at SOI and been friends with since then? And we're like, shit, I wonder which one it is. Well, it turns out it was Riviera, and he, um, he was killed by a sniper. He was killed by a sniper when he was on, on post. Um, Casey Tellison actually did a pretty good write-up, I think it was in the New York Times, or it was in one of those pretty famous uh, news, news uh, companies, or news articles, I don't know, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank here on the word, but he was in the news, he wrote a really nice story, it was uh, very well thought out, very well written, and it's about our first casualty, which in my case was the first like hour that we were there. And we uh, we're out of the checkpoint, so we don't really know what's going on. We saw the medevac chopper, her medevac helicopter, which was a Blackhawk Army Blackhawk with a red cross on it, and it came in, picked him up, took him out. But so the story on this, and this is probably going to piss people off, but I'm I'm telling this story to be as accurate as I know as possible. May not be what actually happened because. You know, the information we were getting at the time didn't make sense, but this is the story as everyone pretty much accepts it, is that we we had assumed control of the base, and second platoon? Second or first platoon? I can't remember which one. They took over um, defending the base, so they took over the posts, which there were seven posts and an ECP. So there were basically like eight posts around the base that you would put a Marine in and they would guard the base from attack, from invaders, from suicide bombers, from car bomb, any of that stuff. And uh, Riviera was on post two and they called. So the way you would do it is we all had radios. Each post had a radio and they would call and they'd say, all posts, Roger, or all posts, all posts, radio check over. And then post one, loud and clear. Post two, loud and clear. Post three, loud and clear. Each person would Roger up. And he didn't Roger up. And it's like, it's like, oh, what the fuck? And so because this is something that I'm going to complain about a lot, and I'm, I'm going to ruffle feathers, but uh, some of our seniors, I think it's because their deployment to Afghanistan wasn't as gnarly as we all thought it was. They only really got in one or two firefights the whole time. But still, I mean, it's still combat, and we were still boots, but they didn't put two and two together that something might be wrong with him. 
They just assumed, oh, he's fucking sleeping because he's a piece of shit boot. So they send who's kind of a piece of shit, and he pokes his head out. He goes up on the roof and he pokes his head around, and he was given instructions to say, if he's sleeping, don't wake him up because I want to wake him up. That's what his squad leader said. So he pokes his head around the corner. He's looking. Riviera is laying halfway out. He's like hanging out of the post, like laying on the fucking roof out the back of the post, which is, I didn't obviously see it, so I don't know. Maybe it wouldn't look that natural sleeping position to me, I feel like. And Stoplin, instead of waking up or making sure he's okay, he goes back down and tells on him. So a squad leader comes up, kicks him, yell, starts yelling at him. I can't remember who the squad leader was. I think he's a pretty good dude. I think that this was just a wake-up call. Because I do remember like liking the guy and thinking and thinking that the dude did a pretty good job. Because there's some people that I'll tell you that are just like, what in the fuck? Um, but he kicks him. Like, what the hell? Wake the fuck up. He doesn't wake up. He rolls him over. He's fucking dead. Sniper got him. Hit him in his chest between his sappy plates. It, you know, instant kill. Like, went in his left pack near his shoulder, and then, like, came out his lower right, like, kidney area or something, like, lower rib cage down there, so it, like, hit everything it had to hit to kill him pretty much instantly, which sucks, because he, he had just gotten married, I think he was, like, fucking, he was a little bit older than me, so I think he was, like, 20 or 21, had just gotten married on pre-deployment leave, and he was gone, and we were, like, holy fuck, like, this is... This is the real deal. But I was out of the checkpoint. Um, so, the, while we're, we're, we end up being at the TCP for like three days. And during the day, the job of the TCP was it, was, it straddled the only road in and out of Hawklandia. So, you had basically an opportunity to search every truck, every car that goes in and out. Now, this is a pretty good setup for us Americans, Marines, is that the Iraqi army actually did it. So the Shia army from down near Basra, I think is where they were from, they would they would patrol from K3, which I'll explain that in a second. They would patrol over every morning, They would and they would search the cars. And we were in our bunker, and it had 50 cows for shooting and stopping VBIEDs. And we had a post up on top, which is where the radio was. I think there was a Blue Force tracker in there, maybe. Um, but there's a laptop. And we uh, we would just basically overwatch these Iraqi army, search the car so that they were put in harm's way and we weren't. Um, and so we ended up staying there for like three days. And during that three days, they're just wounded every day from the company. I mean, that's when, like, Sharp got hit, Gunny Elliott got hit. Like, a lot of people were getting hit pretty much daily by IEDs and, and, and bullets and everything. I think that's when Odom got hit. Um, was really early on, I think. He was in second platoon. He got hit in a firefight, and nobody believed that he was shot. And so maybe I'll have him on here because that'd be pretty funny. He ended up being okay, but he got shot in the chest. But no one believed him because he wasn't, like, bleeding from his chest. But he was like, dudes, I got hit. It hurts. My chest hurts. I'm shot. And no one believed him. Everyone's like, shut the fuck up. 
And then he started bleeding out of his mouth, and everyone's like, oh, fuck, and they took care of him. Yeah, his, his unlucky ass was just there waiting for us when we got back to go on our second deployment. So I guess getting shot in the lung isn't that big of a deal. Um, so then we, we transferred over, and we switched with our other squad in our platoon, one of the other squads in our platoon, who was at K3. K3 is a, it was like an old British oil refinery or oil something, like big tanks and stuff, but there was a Saddam army base, and we had occupied the army base, and that's where the um, Iraqi army stayed. And so it was like a it was like a pretty Western-style building with a courtyard or two courtyards. And so basically we took it and we, we segmented it in one half with one courtyard as the Iraqis, Iraqi army and the other half with the courtyard is the Marines. And so it was actually probably the most comfortable and chill spot to be on the deployment. Um, as I'll explain, we had sort of a monthly rotation eventually. But at this point in the deployment, we just got there. Everything's discombobulated. No one knows what the fuck's going on. We're taking heavy casualties. So, and when you went to K3, you could see the city. Whereas when you're out of the TCP, there's like a, a, a hill that was in the way. So you could kind of hear the rumbles of the big explosions, but you weren't hearing like the gunshots and stuff. You just knew that stuff was going on because you're on the radio. So you were listening to like cat standby for Kazra or st uh, standby for Kazivac nine line, da, 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 IED nine line or whatever. And we, um, we transfer over there. And this is the first time that I really met, like, Iraqi army. And we actually, it was pretty cool. So they were Shia. So they were, we, we trusted them because we were in a Sunni area. So if they got out, they'd get killed by the Sunnis. Um, so, you know, we sat with them. We, we ate some bread and they made food and we chilled out and we talked and we tried to communicate the best we could um, with the language barrier. But they were cool guys to hang out with we had a fire like we just chilled out like a campfire so we were there for about four days and i remember being on the post that faced the city and just watching plumes of smoke explosions and just listening to the rattle of machine guns and different stuff and one of the iraqis came up to my post and he was like Hakonia is bad. And he like said it in kind of broken English or like it's going on down in Hakonia. And I kind of was like, yeah, I haven't even fucking been there yet. <laughs> like I don't even know what the hell I'm getting into. And uh, we we transferred, and this is where things got fucked up because we hadn't set up the weekly rotation yet. So we basically just rotated back to the TCP for another like four days. So we ended up being at the checkpoints, away from the FOB, for the first, like, 11 days. During which, medevacs every day, multiple medevacs every day, and, and from that vantage point, you could see the medevacs coming from Al-Assad to the rest of the battalion. So you could see them, they would fly over Hakonia to get to Haditha, and they would fly over Hakonia to get to Barwana. And we, um... We finally come back to the base, and I think that we immediately went on post. We came from the checkpoints, and we immediately went on post, and we're standing post, and no one wants to stand post, too, because 
Riviera died in it, and so I was like, fuck it, I'll do it, guys, come on. So I take post two, and we, yeah, we did take post first, because then our gunny, we had a, or sorry, not a gunny, our staff sergeant, our platoon sergeant was this guy, Staff Sergeant Judd. Dude was on, like, his fifth deployment or something, and he, hold up, I'm going to pause for a second, my dog is acting like he needs to take a shit. Out and back from let my dog out. Um, I think I'm just going to end here, actually. I think it's a good spot to end. Um, we did our first rotation to the uh, to the checkpoints. And then I think I'm going to start editing some photos in here so you can kind of see what I'm talking about. See what I'm talking about. And uh, I will see you next episode.